Welcome to another Take 15 episode from CFA Institute. I'm Dave Larrabee and today I'm joined by Sam Peters. Sam's Chief Investment Officer at Lay Mason Capital Management and he recently took the helm of the firm's flagship Value Trust Mutual Fund. Sam, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, let's start with a quick overview of Lake Mason's approach to investing in equities. Um, how does your firm define value and how do you go about uncovering undervalued stocks? Sure, um, and, and there are three things and, and really what it starts with, we consider ourselves valuation managers. We then take active bets around valuation, which I'll get into in a bit, and then we tend to be longer term. So convergence between price and value, as long as we still think we have edge around understanding valuation, we'll give it time to play out. But uh, valuation is, a lot of it is the core is, is free cash flow base. So we're really trying to get to the underlying cash economics of the business. Um, the beauty of that, you know, people say if you do discounted cash flows, it's so sensitive. It's like a telescope. You knock it, you're in a different galaxy. Mm -hmm. But we do sensitivity analysis around that. So we'll think about, um, you know, probability trees. We'll even do Monte Carlos. The beauty is we, we want to understand a range of valuations. The second piece of that approach that's helpful to us is once you start thinking about it that way, it gives you a lot of flexibility. You can look at traditional growth names. For instance, in the fund, as you probably know, we own Amazon. Um, at the same time, we'll own a very deep value name like a MetLife. But we're thinking about it the same way. What's the underlying business value? What drives that? And then our returns over time come from convergence between price and value. So pretty disciplined about that. And when I'm looking at the fund, um, we have an estimate of upside but we have a range of upsides, so high and low, and, and really defined uh, from that standpoint. And then the second piece is that active share. So we tend to be concentrated. I'm running right now in Value Trust with around 45 names, plus or minus. Um, so you have to spend a lot of time understanding those bets, not just active positions at the name level, meaning how different you are at, from the index, but also from a valuation standpoint how much of the index is classically valuation is defined as we define it. We look at capital deployment. So I think right now share buybacks and dividends, obviously people are approaching the equity market again through yield. Where is your active yield bet or total owner's yield bet as an example for around capital deployment versus the index? Um, size, any way you sort of slice it, you want to be intelligent about how your active bets are. Mm -hmm. And then the final piece is timing. Um, my turnover puts me somewhere between two and, and four years typically and sometimes longer. Um, what we're really looking at that is here's our valuation. We're arguing XYZ stock is worth 100, we buy it at 60. Why, you, you have to ask the arrogant question, why is the market going to be wrong? And here we always ask, why are embedded expectations in the stock and those free cash flows as we analyze them, why are they going to get exceeded? So why is Mr. Market wrong? It's a very arrogant question, and a lot of times we get it wrong. So if an investment case gets violated, we'll quickly move out of the stock. Conversely, though, if the investment case seems like it's hanging in there, the fundamentals, competitive strategy, those things we analyze seem like they're rolling out as we expect. Even though price and value aren't converging, we'll be very patient to see that through. Sam, your firm has a reputation for seeking out research from some unusual sources. Uh, can you talk a bit about why you do this and the competitive edge 
it might provide you? Yeah, I mean, you hit on it. It's so hard getting edge, and and so much of if if you think about the the two areas, and we've sort of split edge into three layers. Is that informational level layer? That was we think a lot of that got arbitraged away a long time ago. That was fidelity with the fax machines twenty years ago. You know, getting the quarterly earnings before FD, before everybody else. Still, a lot of people try to play that, and we just think that's hard, and especially with our size of a firm. Second piece is analytical, and really where you get an analytical edge, it's a framing. So there's, there's a lot of different ways. We all know about the narrative fallacy. So your brain wants to come up with a logical reason, typically why you're right, and you've got to guard against that. Thinking about other inputs, and, and we use the Santa Fe Institute, we're best known for, but different mental models from biology, from different areas. Can, can we think about something from a lot of different frames and try and analyze it differently? And the classic example we use a lot is Amazon. Is Amazon a retailer, as a lot of people thought it was? Um, is it a tech company? Is it an internet commerce company? What is it? And for a long time, people uh, framed it as a retailer. We thought that was wrong. The final piece is behavioral. Um, I'm married to a PhD in psychology, so uh, it's, a, it's an interest of mine but really understanding the different biases, which we're as, we're as susceptible to falling prey to those as anyone else, but we spend a lot of time reading through the academic research on narrative uh, fallacy, endowment effect, overconfidence, all the things you know, but really trying to incorporate into the process. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, now your predecessor, Bill Miller, he had a tremendous run outperforming the S&P 500 for 15 straight years, ending back in uh, 2005. Uh, since then, uh, performance has hit a bit of a rough patch. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there's been plenty of introspection sure. uh, since that time. Um, can you share with us any lessons learned um, and maybe what you might be doing differently as a result? Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the big ones is uh, when, when you're thinking about valuation managers and, and we think about what gets discounted. You know, over the last sort of four and five years, and, and I, I kind of credit George Soros and the reflexive nature of markets, but even though we didn't have a Great Depression, we avoided it this time, I think because of, of policy, quite frankly, but a lot of assets discounted a Great Depression. And then bringing in the reflexivity, there was action around that. So if you're, if you're wholesale funded, which a lot of, of things became wholesale funded during the crisis, even though you didn't have a Great Depression, we had value traps where you had intrinsic business value per share get destroyed because of raising capital. A lot of this happened mm -hmm. in the financials. Mm -hmm. And then over the last three years, we've had two recession scares. We didn't have recessions, but recessions got discounted into those assets. So really what we've been learning in, in the first chunk of avoiding value traps, really understand the balance sheet and know that the balance sheet has to withstand even if you're right on the economic outcome or the macro outcome, a lot of, of, of tail events can get priced into these assets and the markets may, there may be a reaction that destroys value. And the classic one again is getting diluted at financials. The second is value traps. Um, in a slower real economic growth environment um, and the way the market works now, I, I like um, when uh, uh, Louis Bacon and Moore a few weeks ago when he sent the letter to shareholders when he was giving back the $2 billion, he said everything is being priced about disaster economics. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's true, and that means that there's, there's fewer natural liquidity providers. 
when we're buying between price and value, there's fewer guys who come in and say, hey, this thing's worth 100, I'm gonna start buying it. In, in, a, in an environment where you're getting redeemed and there's steady, steady outflows, there's just less of a, a natural sort of mean reversion action. It's mm -hmm. less linear. Mm -hmm. So being more patient about things. And then the final thing is just value traps. I mentioned the investment cases, and you have to ask that arrogant question of if you think there's a price value gap, why is the market getting it wrong? Well, when it starts to show up in the data, whether quarterly reports or the fundamental data, that you're wrong and that you don't have an edge and expectations are right, move out of the way. Mm -hmm. And that's especially true in companies that have big secular headwinds that a lot of times look like good value, but a lot of times the market gets those right. The secular headwinds are too much and you've got to get out of the way. Okay. So where are you finding the best values in the market today? Um, well, a, a lot of them are, uh, there's, a, there's a couple areas and there's some few premiums. I mentioned free cash flows are big for us. Um, really looking at high elevated free cash flow yields, there's still quite a bit in the, in the U.S. market. And, and it's not just large, but there's a lot in the large areas, companies that have no balance sheet risk. In fact, in many cases, balance sheet's better than the U.S. government, for instance, as measured by CDS or other measures. Um, but they're discounting very little growth, yet very, have very high returns. So the ability to pay uh, no or very little premiums for growth with some very high quality companies uh, is, is very evident to us. And again, how we do that is high free cash flows, understand what growth needs to be right to justify the price, and classic areas, you know, the, the darlings of the 1990s, so healthcare, some of the big global-oriented but consumer discretionary and consumer franchises, um, uh, technology stocks, um, and, and, and more and more, and this is somewhat controversial, but in financials. And then increasingly over the summer with the terrible performance in energy, uh, energy's been doing better of late, but certainly the previous quarter was, was, has been giving back a lot of ground. Energy now in price to book looks more interesting. Uh, we're not diving in that much yet, but we're spending a lot of time there, especially in the gas side. So summarizing that, the classic sort of growth names, if you will, high quality global franchises, that are discounting very little growth despite very good fundamentals and actually growth rates that are still pretty healthy. Financials, which we can get into, and then, and then increasingly of late, we're, we're kicking the tires quite a bit in energy. Sam, uh, speaking of financials, uh, the regulatory landscape has changed considerably uh, for financial firms over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, it seems unlikely that they're going to be able to employ the type of leverage they have in the past. Won't this impact returns? And if that's the case, uh, do we need to recalibrate our valuations on financial stocks? Yeah, regulatory headwinds are absolutely going to lower returns. So they're impacting the income statement. Um, you see that it's most pronounced like in the large banks, as we all know, uh, especially as Basel III kicks in and the SIFI buffers. However, again, what, what people need to step back and ask with, with the group broadly selling at book or below, what's discounted? So, you know, the market gets the joke that the ROEs are going to be less, how much less, and then what are the ROEs that are discounted. And, and basically what we've tried to do in the portfolio is buy financials that have some franchise strength. And what I mean by that is today, are they earning returns on equity above the cost of capital today? And we've put together, you can put together a basket of financials, which we've done, that are. So I'm not even looking in the crystal ball. And a lot of people say because of regulatory, it's going to be like Japan. Well, it's not. In Japan, they haven't earned above their cost of capital. The financials haven't in a long time. 
here you can find that are today, even in the regulatory aspect. Um, the, the, the second piece of that, um, uh, really from a, from a regulatory standpoint, is are there other offsets, are there things that they can do, and are there actually some financials that may benefit from this and, and haven't changed? Some of the insurance stocks, and it, it even include life insurance, post this uh, period of financial turmoil, um, I would say their business models have been enhanced, yet they're being painted by the same brush as a lot of the others. So um, even some of the names we don't own, like a Prudential or a MetLife, which we do, they're priced way below book value. They're both earning 10% plus ROEs in this environment, which we would argue is pretty much in line with the cost of capital, yet are selling at a big discount, a, a discount that implies a much lower ROE today. Even more controversial, you could say that about J.P. Morgan. Even post the, the CIO debacle, the, the, the hedging uh, debacle in the mm -hmm. last quarter, they're still earning a low teens to mid teens return on tangible common equity, well above the cost of capital, yet during that period it went down below tangible book value. All I would argue, that's a much worse outcome, a much worse return outcome, even with the regulatory pressures, even with all the, this very tough environment um, that isn't reflected in the valuations. So let's, the past decade or so, it's been exceedingly tough for equity investors. Uh, we've had sharp market corrections, financial scandals, bank bailouts, uh, and there's this feeling among investors that the game is rigged. What's Leg Mason doing uh, to address this crisis of confidence uh, among investors? Well, I mean, from, from my standpoint, um, you know, people are going to come back through yield. So it's almost like they, they, so many things have been shaken that people thought were true, and, and you mentioned many of them, but they want to see the cash. They want something that's real. And you're, you're seeing people come back. They, they're getting squeezed out of fixed income because of monetary policies and others. So they're coming back into equities. So when I'm talking to investors, and I know confidence is low, you need to make it tangible. You talk about yield. And obviously, we talk about free cash flow yield, mm -hmm. but I also talk about total owner's yield, and I also talk about cash dividend yield. So even on the, the major portfolio I run, we have a 2.5% cash dividend yield, and pe you see people engage there because it seems real to them. The key, though, is I'm not going after the dividend yield. I'm going after the growth rate of those dividends. The payout ratio for the fund, for the market broadly, is around 30%. It's historically low. So there's a lot of room for those cash returns to grow. And then on the other side, I look at the risk. And I mentioned, we, you know, I look at credit default swaps. The U.S. government, you know, at their current rating level is around uh, 40. You can buy a lot of, you know, multinational, incredibly well-managed global companies. A lot of them in the U.S., but, but even in Europe and in Asia, that have credit default swaps that are right on top of the U.S. government or below. That gets a little technical, but what you tell people is, you know, these are incredibly well-managed, cash-rich balance sheets, very high returns, being managed much better than your local sovereign, whatever, whatever that is, mm -hmm. um, and you're going to get a growing cash flow stream. My personal feeling after the behavioral scarring that everybody's faced that seems real enough to people. That's the simple math they can do. And the simplest math in valuation investing is starting dividend yield plus your expected dividend growth rate gives you some sense of an expected return in, in equities in this manner. That's so much better 
than the so-called risk-free rates, the equity risk premium, as we all know, so elevated. Mm -hmm. That's how people, I think, are going to re-enter so-called risk assets. But as always, we talked about framing. The way people are perceiving risk and looking at the tail risk and being scared about that, they're overdoing that. And in a lot of so-called risk-free, to me the question is, because risk-free is below the rate of inflation, you know, negative real returns, or are you going to lose money slowly or quickly? And so they're actually taking on a lot of risk, so you need to pull them back where they actually can invest, where there's a decent probability risk-adjusted of a good expected return over time. And I think the yield framing helps people do that. Sam, thanks very much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you for watching. You can access our full library of content at cfainstitute.org. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.